Well, good evening. Good to see you all this evening. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at Paul's commendation of two servants of the Lord, and then Paul's exhortation beginning in chapter 3, and all of this scripture is surrounding the theme of joy. Remember, our entire series in the book of Philippians is fighting for joy. God is so serious about joy that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to implant a joy within us that no circumstance can erase and that can endure any trial that you and I will navigate in this life. That's how serious God is about joy. It is a joy that is produced in our hearts and in our lives through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as we yield to him, which is why in Galatians 5, and 23, it is one of the fruit of the Spirit. As you and I yield to the Spirit, as we're filled with the Spirit, as we're controlled with the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all of these fruit will be evidenced and manifested in our lives. Supernatural. And the reason I said I wanted to talk about us fighting for joy is many times even as followers of God, we settle for a lesser joy than what can only be produced in our lives supernaturally through the Holy Spirit and offered to us by God. We, we settle for less. And Paul is saying, in my life, I had to learn to fight for the real joy, to not take shortcuts, but to go all the way with God and all in with God so that I could experience the fullness of joy that God has for his people. I want to begin tonight actually by reading verses 19 through 30, giving us sort of a lay of the land here as Paul commends these two saints of God. And we're going to see that in the course of this missionary report, because that's really what it is, it is a missionary report from Paul back to the Philippians about how things are going with him so that they won't be so concerned, and about one of their own Epaphroditus who was sent by the church at Philippi to minister to Paul. How's he doing? In the midst of all this, Paul shows us four very important truths about the Christian life. So please follow along with me. Paul says, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by hearing news about you. For there is no one here like him who will readily demonstrate his deep concern for you. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his qualifications, that like a son working with his father, he served with me in advancing the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I know more about my situation, though I am confident in the Lord that I too will be coming to see you soon. But for now I have considered it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you, for he is my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to me in my need." Indeed, he greatly missed all of you and was distressed because you heard that he had been ill. In fact, he became so ill that he nearly died. But God showed mercy to him, and not to him only, but also to me, so that I would not have grief on top of grief. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you can rejoice and I can be free from anxiety. So welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, since it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died. 
He risked his life so that he could make up for your inability to serve me. By the way, as I was reading that, I was reminded, you and I think we need to wait, whether it's on the Lord or on a situation. How'd you like to have lived back then? Before cell phones, before internet. I mean, it took weeks maybe for them to get news about how something was going and how someone was doing. They had to really learn to be patient and wait on God's timing for things. And yet sometimes we think, you know, it's not soon enough for us. But here's what I want us to see. In this passage, again, Paul is really commending Timothy and Epaphroditus to the Philippian church, but in the midst of doing it, he shows us four very important truths about the Christian life. And the first one is this. Joy does not mean the absence of trial. Joy does not mean the absence of trial. You'll notice, as we talked about last week, the Philippians, they were going through trial. They were poor and becoming poorer. In fact, Paul talks about them in the, in the letter to the Corinthians about how out of their pover, poverty they were still giving in order to minister to others. So obviously, out of their poverty, they were, they were getting even poorer as far as finances go. They were becoming more maligned, more marginalized, more persecuted. And so the Philippian church was going through it. And yet Paul said, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're going to get to that in chapter 4. All through this book, though, Paul is encouraging and showing us how we can be filled with joy in spite of our circumstances. Paul himself was going through a trial, was he not? He was under house arrest in Rome. He was not a free man at this point. The only way he could see people is if they went to him. He couldn't get to anybody else. And so he was sort of locked down there, and yet he was filled with joy. How about Epaphroditus? Remember over in verse 30, for the work of Christ, he almost died. It's a pretty big trial. He was very ill. And by the way, he was ill and he was sick to the point of death, not for doing something wrong, not for some big sin he had committed, but for actually doing what was right and what Christ had called him to do. So again, joy is not the absence of trial. We have to learn that our joy comes from centering our life, and we sang about that even tonight, so our centering our life in the Lord and finding our joy in him. In fact, we're going to get to this later on tonight, but notice what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in what? The Lord. We can always rejoice in the Lord. We may not be able to rejoice in our circumstances, in our situation, or in how they, but we can always find our joy in the Lord, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. By the way, this joy that Paul's talking about here comes from the Lord, but it also comes through the participation of Christians involved in ministry and the partnerships that you and I have. Remember back in chapter 1, he says, in every prayer of mine, I'm praying with joy because of your participation in the gospel. As Paul saw them partner and, and participate in the work of the Lord, that brought joy to Paul, just like it should bring joy to us as we see other Christians, you know, engaging and, and serving and ministering and being a partner. 
Christianity is not a spectator sport. <laughs> we are to participate and be engaged and, and be partners with one another in kingdom work. And when we see other Christians doing that, it should bring joy. And the other thing that should bring us joy is our partnerships, which leads me to the second point here, the second truth that Paul brings out in this passage is not only does joy not mean the absence of trial, but that the Christian life is a life of companionship. The Christian life is a life of companionship. Paul had partners. Again, notice what he says about Timothy in verse 22. Like a son working with his father, he served with me in advancing the gospel. Paul always had partners. Paul was never, as we've said over and over again, a lone ranger Christian. He never tried to do Christian life and ministry all alone. He always had a companion or partner in ministry. And then notice what he says about Epaphroditus up in verse 25 again. Notice all the the things how he describes Epaphroditus. First of all, he's my brother in Christ. Then he says he's my co-worker. Then he says he's my fellow soldier because he's willing to go out there on the spiritual battlefield and fight the enemy and gain new ground and new territory for the kingdom of God. He's your messenger. Oh, and he's also a minister to me in my needs. By the way, Paul was not ashamed to say he had needs and that he needed ministered to. You know, one of the signs of maturing as a Christian is not only being willing to minister to others, but being mature enough to receive ministry from others. That's so important because so often as Christians, we, we find it, you know, really in our, in our comfort level, if you will, to do for others and to serve and minister to others, but we don't want to receive ministry from others. And it's just as important that we learn to receive from others as to do from others so that we can live a balanced life. Remember, throughout our years at the Oasis, I've told you that in order to live a balanced life, at any one time, we need a Paul in our life, a spiritual mentor, someone who's pouring into us. We need a Barnabas in our life, a spiritual equal, someone that we can do life with together, that we're sort of about at the same place spiritually. And then we need a Timothy, somebody that we're pouring into. You can't have a Timothy in your life without a Paul because then you're going to deplete yourself. You're not going to be able to minister out of the overflow. We need to receive from others as much as we need to be giving to others. And Paul was not ashamed to say, he ministered to me. And I was in need. I needed other Christians around me. Their encouragement, their comfort, their strength. God used them in my life. So the Christian life is a life of companionship. And it is through our partnerships and our companionships with other Christians that God brings joy into our life. You see, it still comes from the Lord. It's still joy from Him. But He's using participation and He's using partnerships to bring about that joy. God uses us, you see. We can be his instruments to bring joy to others and to be a source of joy to others. So, number one, joy does not mean the absence of trial. Two, the Christian life is a life of companionship. Three, we should always seek first the interests of Christ. 
This blew me away when I started to drill down on what Paul said about Timothy here. Notice what he says in verse 20 and 21. Now remember something. This is when the church, we, we look back and go, oh, that's when the church was thriving. That's when everybody in the church was committed, right? That, that's when the church was really on fire for God, right? Well, yeah, but notice how honest Paul is. He says, first of all, there is no one here like him. <laughs> Paul said, Timothy, there's something special about him to me and I think to the Lord. Not, not everybody has the same commitment level to God. And not everybody is going to impact our lives and be as significant to us personally as everybody else. God is going to use some people in our lives in a very special, significant way that is set apart. For, and Paul said to saints that there'll never be another Timothy. There's no one like him as far as I'm concerned. But notice what he went on to say about Timothy. First of all, he will readily demonstrate his deep concern for you which implies not everybody will be as concerned or care about what's going on to the Philippians as Timothy is. Why does Timothy have that heart for the Philippians? Because he caught that off of Paul? Because he and Paul were partners? And Paul's saying, you know, if I sent anybody else besides Timothy, they wouldn't have the heart for you back there that Timothy has. But then notice what he says in verse 21 about Timothy. Other Christians are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus Christ. <laughs> wow. Now remember something. Paul is surrounded by Christians. And he's got some great, I mean, I could name them. You'd recognize them. They're in, their names are in the Bible. And yet Paul said when it comes right down to it, most of them aren't as committed as Timothy is. Most of them aren't all in with Jesus and with, with working for the Lord and his kingdom and all of that as Timothy is. And that was 2,000 years ago that Paul said that. Couldn't we say the same thing today? How many Christians are really Matthew 6, 33-ing it, as I like to say? Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all those other things Jesus said will be added. How many Christians are more living for all the other things and when they have time and everything's convenient, then, you know, then I'll, I'll fit Jesus in somewhere. Paul said the same thing even in his day. He said, as I look around at the church, he said, most people, I got to tell you, most of them, they're not really seeking Jesus first. They're doing what they want to do first. And yet he says, but Timothy? Ah, Timothy's different. Timothy's full-on committed to Jesus Christ. Timothy is all in with Jesus. I have no one else like him in my life. Now, the reason I wanted to stop here and pause for a minute is we're talking here about joy and experiencing joy. And through this, what Paul is also saying is, if you and I would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we would be filled with joy. The problem is, 
Again, we settle for the lesser things. We settle for what the world offers us or what the devil offers us or what others are, or even what we in our own heart desire apart from the Lord because somehow we think that's going to make me happy. That's going to fill me with joy. And what it actually does is all those other things rob us of the joy we can only have when we put the Lord first in our life. And here's the great thing about God. God says, if you put me first, not only will you be filled with joy, but all those other things that I'll give you, you'll actually find joy in those things more so by putting me first than you ever could by replacing me with those things. Do we see that? So when we talk about fighting for joy, that's one of the important principles that Paul's bringing out here in Philippians chapter 2. And then, speaking about Epaphroditus, the fourth truth is we should be ready to die for the work of Christ. It is only when you and I are ready and willing to die for the work of Christ and the kingdom of Christ that we truly can live. Because then we're not going to hold anything back. It's like, God, whatever you want me to do, even if it's, because why? Well, because that's the essence of the Christian life, isn't it? Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you and I have to, to, to make up our minds to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. And to take up our cross means to die to self. It means to live a selfless, sacrificial life, not to put ourselves above the Lord and his will and his work and his kingdom. And that's exactly what Epaphroditus did. Notice again, it says in verse 30, it was because of the work of Christ that he almost died. He risked his life to minister to Paul. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs about exactly what brought about this serious illness that brought Epaphroditus to death's door. We don't know all the details. Paul doesn't give it to us. And there's really no reason to speculate. But what we do know is this, that it was all brought about by Epaphroditus leaving Philippi and being the Philippian church's representative to Paul and going to Rome and ministering to Paul. You see, the Philippians loved Paul, but they all couldn't go. So they decided, who can we send as our representative? Who would best represent our church? And who would be the one person out of our church that we know that if we sent them there, that again, they would, they would pour their all into it. They would minister to the Apostle Paul. They would be there for him each and every day. Whatever Paul needed, however he needed to be encouraged and strengthened and comforted and all that. And if Paul needed something, who could we send? Church said Epaphroditus. I thought to myself as the pastor of this church, if we were in a similar situation as a church and say there was some dear saint somewhere and all of us couldn't go and all of us couldn't get there, but we could send one person to represent our church to minister to that person, who would we send? Who would be that person that would have that heart, that selflessness, that, that sacrificial spirit, that willingness to lay it all on the line to minister to this other person? That was Epaphroditus. And the reason I say that this is also a principle that brings joy is because it does. Isn't that what Jesus taught? If, if we want to save our life, we'll lose it. But if we want to, you know, 
hold on to our life, then we're really going to lose it. We're going to lose the joy that only comes through selfless sacrifice. Last week, I quoted the verse out of Hebrews where it says, who for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross. He laid down his life. But he knew joy was coming, you see. When he was reunited with his Father in heaven and exalted to his right hand. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, Jesus said it abides alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus calls us to a life of selfless sacrifice, a life that says, Lord, I will take up my cross, and if this is your path, if this is your will for me, I'm willing to lay it all on the line. I'm willing to go to the, to the end, to the wall, to the limit, whatever, whatever it is, Lord, and if it costs me my life, I got an eternal life and glory waiting for me. I'm not going to hold anything back. And like I said, it's not that God might even want our life to be taken at that point or want us to lay down our life at that point, but it's the willingness that brings joy. Don't you see that in the story of Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice his own son Isaac? that in a sense there was a joy in even Abraham taking his own son up on that altar at Mount Moriah and laying him down there. And Jesus is trying to teach us if we would simply just present our body a living sacrifice and lay our life down, that the Holy Spirit would fill us with such joy. But so often we want to hold on to our life. You know, we want to be in control and we think we know best and we're not just going to surrender our life over to God because, my goodness, again, what, what could he want and, and what would he ask me to do and, and all of this and it's going to be horrendous and, 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 and I'm not going to, you know, be filled with joy and, and it's just the opposite. When we let go because we cannot place ourselves into the hands of one who loves us any more than God does. And God's love always has our best interests at heart and always has our back. God would never ask us to do something that in any way was destructive or damaging to us in any way. It would only bring us joy and good, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Well, speaking of that, let's move on to chapter 3 for a few moments. Because after the commendation of Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul has an exhortation. And I'm going to begin talking about this exhortation this week, and then we'll continue from chapter 3 next week. I want us to see that in this exhortation, Paul just really lays out three basics of the Christian life. Rejoice, beware, and be real. Rejoice, beware, and be real. You see, first of all, in verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is no trouble for me. In fact, it is a safeguard. Literally, it is suited to confirm something in you and in me. I want to talk about that for a minute, the second part of verse 1. Notice Paul says, I never tire of repetition. I never tire of saying the same thing to you over and over and over again. Why? Because Paul learned that's the way I got it. 
Repetition. We as Christians sometimes, I think, need to be more repetitive. It's how we learn things. It's, you know, the phrase today is muscle memory. You know, you do something so often, you just do it a certain way. I was talking to someone today about that in a meeting I had. I said, back when I played football, I said, practice was nothing more than we would all, 11 guys on offense, we would, we would practice the same play until every last person, every one of us was in the right place at the right time doing the right thing in that play. We might have to run over that same play 20, 25, 30 times, but I guarantee you one thing, after we ran over it so much in practice, when you got to the game, you just knew when that play was called, you knew what to do. It was ingrained in us. And Paul is saying, that's how we really learn to ingrain things into our life. It's through repetition. Someone was asking me today, too. They were saying, how do you know so much scripture? And I said, I've never intentionally sat down and memorized verses of the Bible. I said, I'm not against people that want to memorize the Bible. That's fine if that's what you want to do. But I said, if, if verses have stuck, they've only stuck just simply because I just keep going back over them, year after year, month after month. We, and I'm saying that to encourage you. Just keep, don't, don't worry about going back over that same verse every day for a week or a month or whatever. Sometimes just lock in on something and just keep repeating it over and over. You know what? You'll find you just know it. It becomes a part of you. That's what Paul's saying. I'm writing the same thing to you that I've told you before. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to drill, it's going to confirm it. We need to do that with one another. I want to go back, though, to the first basic, rejoice. But notice again, rejoice in the Lord. Why is experiencing joy a struggle? Because our experience of joy is not centered in the Lord. Because <laughs> that's what Paul said. See, we're trying to find joy in something else or someone else other than the Lord. And Paul said the only real joy, the deepest joy, the, the most abiding joy, the, the, the most sustaining joy is only found in the Lord. So we rejoice in him. Secondly, it is not only centered in the Lord, but it's also in the reception of his grace. I've shared this with you before, but I want to remind all of us the Greek word for grace and the Greek word for joy are very similar, very similar. Charis is grace, Cairo is joy. They basically come from the same root. And what God teaches us there is when I receive his grace rather than reject his grace, I can be filled with joy. When I go to the throne of grace and ask for grace, I can receive joy because God's joy is tied in to his grace. When we live by grace, when we do things by his grace, by his supernatural enablement and empowerment, we can be filled with joy no matter what he's asking us to do or what life situation we have to navigate when we're doing it with his grace, which is why God told Paul, 
when Paul went and said, God, take this thorn in the flesh away from me, and God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you. Not only is God's grace sufficient for us, but it also, when we receive his grace in each and every situation of life, it fills us with joy, you see. So Paul says, first basic, first exhortation, rejoice. Second, verse 2, beware. Be on guard against false teachers who question the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who come along and say, well, it's fine, you got Jesus, but you got to have Jesus plus this, plus that, and they start adding to Jesus. First of all, he says, notice, in three, in three times in verse 2, beware. First, beware of the dogs. And you and I have a problem with this because we live in a day and age where they're very cute, they're domesticated, there are household pets. In Paul's day, that was not the case. Dogs were not pets in people's homes. Dogs were scavengers that literally roamed around the city and just caused havoc. They ate stuff that you left out and you had to be very careful and... and and they, they were much more, you know, violent, prone to violent attacks on people and children and all that. They were not looked at in Paul's day, dogs, the same way that they are today. So when he says beware of dogs, he's not talking about the animal. He's talking about these false teachers, but he's describing them in a way that was a negative term back in his day. Then he says, beware of the evil workers, and then we get a little bit of a hint Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. You see, it was Jesus plus circumcision. Or let's just say it was Jesus plus externals. It was Jesus plus works. It was Jesus plus doing something. And that's why he goes on to say, even in verse 4, put no confidence in the flesh. That's what human credentials in verse 4, the translation in that really means. And Paul talks about the fact that humanly he had, you know, every right to put confidence in his flesh or in his human credentials, but he learned that that didn't get him anywhere. Beware, Paul says. Beware of those who come into our life and either teach us or try to to be an example of, of one that somehow Jesus Christ isn't enough. That Jesus Christ and what he's done and who he is and all of that and what he provides for them is not enough. He's not sufficient. Paul says, beware, beware. Because the only way you and I are going to find joy in our life is when we realize Jesus Christ is enough. <laughs> he's, he's everything. He's my... I don't need anyone or anything other than, if I got Jesus, I've got all that I need. And I find my joy in my relationship with him and my worship of him in everything that he provides for me. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Beware. And then finally, be real. Be real. Be real involving two things. One, remember who we are. And then Paul's going to say, remember who I was. I love verse 3 of Philippians 3 because it's a fourfold description of what Christians should be. 
And notice here, the first thing is, Paul says, we are the circumcision. Literally, we are the true circumcision. What's he saying there? He's saying, unlike those who focus on the externals, we focus on the internals. Or as one writer once said, don't focus on the externals, focus on the eternals. They were all about the flesh, all about physical, material things. And Paul says, no, no, those of us that are real, we're all about the spiritual operation of God. We're about the invisible things. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, we don't, we don't do our warfare with human weapons and earthly things. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strong. Our weapons are spiritual weapons. Paul says, we're not focused on the physical. The physical has limitations. The material has limitations. The spiritual that comes from God, the supernatural resources and gifts that come from, they have no limitations. God is almighty. Therefore, he says, we don't focus on external things. We're focused on the heart. We're focused on internal things. Second, and we've been talking about this through our worship series, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God. We need God to worship God. If the Spirit of God doesn't show up, if the Spirit of God isn't filling us, then we cannot properly worship God. And we worship God also by the leading and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. We try to do that every Sunday and Wednesday. And that's why you've heard me say, and I will say it over again, I'm so thankful for Nicole being our worship leader because I know her heart. And I know that her desire is that we're going to be spirit-led up here. And she can have a plan and she prepares and all of that, but at the end of the day, she's going to go with where the spirit leads her. And I thank God for that. That's the kind of church we need to be. That's the kind of worship we need to have. Because honestly, guys, I do the same thing when I speak. You just don't notice it as much. <laughs> because you don't really even know what my plan was. But I can go up here and I can be prepared and all prayed up and, and studied and everything else, and yet I might get up here and all of a sudden the Spirit says, now, Jeff, I want you to go here and I want you to say this. I'm like, okay. I mean, I, I don't do it all the time. I'm not saying, but I'm saying we try to allow the Spirit of God to be our leader. And Paul says that's one of the signs of of, of true Christians is we don't worship God by our own plans and, and by our own wit and wisdom. We, we follow the leading and guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit every step of the way. Third, we exalt in Christ Jesus. We magnify him. We celebrate him. We lift him up. That's what it's all about. We're not trying to put a spotlight on ourselves and draw attention to ourselves and lift ourselves up. We're nothing without Jesus Christ. We want to put Jesus on display. We want him to get the glory for it. Paul says, not the false teachers. By the way, when you and I live this way, when we concentrate on the internal rather than the external, when we worship the Lord by the leading and guidance of the Spirit, when we exalt Jesus Christ, guess what's produced in our life? Joy. Joy. That's why Paul's listing these. And then finally, and do not rely on human credentials or on the flesh or on even the pedigrees. And, you know, and I'll just say this. Listen, I'm not anti-education. 
My Bible education and seminary education was wonderful, but I love what Chuck Swindoll once said to a group of, of seminarians. He says, get your education and then get over it. So you've got this degree and that degree. It doesn't matter if you're not walking with the Lord every day. So you've, so you've known the Lord for 50 years. Are you walking with him now? Are you fellowshipping with him now? Are you worshiping with him now? That's what counts. Not what happened in the past and what our pedigree is and how many you know, degrees are by someone's name and all that. That, that doesn't matter. What matters is, do we love the Lord Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's what matters. And so Paul says, let's be real. I'll end with this. Not only does Paul want us to be real remembering who we are, verse 3, but he wants us to remember who he was. Because notice what he says in verses 4 through 7. Though mine too are significant, my human credentials, if someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in the flesh or in human credentials, he says, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But Paul says, these assets I have come to regard as liabilities because of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if religion would have worked for anybody. If good works would have worked for anybody, if being a good moral person would have worked for anybody in this universe, it would have worked for me. It didn't. It didn't matter at all. The only thing that mattered for me was Jesus Christ and his righteousness, Paul said. So he says, never forget who I was. I was the most religious, moral, good person you could find. I followed the law. I checked off all the boxes. I went to church every week. I knew my Bible and all that, but I did not have Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he said, it was only when I met Jesus on the road to Damascus and surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and then was found in him, not having my own righteousness by the law, Paul said to the Romans, but having the righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ, Paul said, that's when the joy came. I had no joy in trying to live up to human standards. I found no joy in being the most religious person. I found no joy in trying to be the most good moral person that I could be. Where I found joy was when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. That's when I found joy. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for not only the commendation that the Apostle Paul had for his friends and companions in ministry, Timothy and Epaphroditus, but God, we thank you for the exhortations of Paul. That God, the very basics of our Christian life can be reduced to rejoice, beware, and be real. And God, that's what we desire to be. Help us, God, because we need you. We cannot do this without you. And we don't put any confidence in our own flesh. If we try to do it ourselves, God, we will fail every time. 
It's only when we learn as Christians to depend and rely totally on your spirit and on your grace, God, can we find success and find traction in our Christian walk. And so, God, I pray tonight that maybe more than anything else, we've just been reminded over and over again that, God, we've got to stop trying to do this Christian thing by ourselves, that we need partners, we need companions, but most of all, God, we need you. We cannot live this life without you, God. So, God, we fall upon you tonight. ask that you would take us home, give us a good night of rest tonight. Wake us up, God, so that we can serve you and be a light for you again tomorrow. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, we'll see you next week. Thanks for being here.